Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Wright's talk is inherently aggressive, even imperial. It tends towards moral inflation and militates against accommodation. Rights talkers, with their inner monologues of preemptive resentments, work themselves into a simmering state of annoyed vigilance against any limits on their willfulness. I wonder if anybody knows who said that. It's a quote. It's from George Will, the conservative newspaper columnist. And that's from a column that he wrote in 2009 the balance of which was, so far as I could tell, a spot-on account of life in the well-heeled suburban state of nature known as Chevy Chase, Maryland, where he lives. Um, In the course of that uh, column about Wright's talk, what he called Wright's talk, he mentioned one of the most celebrated academic criticisms of Wright's talk, which was a 1991 book called Wright's Talk by by a Harvard professor, and former United States Ambassador to the Vatican, Marianne Glendon. The conservative criticism of Wright's talk usually dilates on a kind of individualistic, agonistic, zero-sum politics, which is really no politics at all, but what one might characterize as the remains of politics, left behind by a community that has become rigidly legalistic and incapable of honest deliberation. So there is the suggestion that rights are a modern idea and connected perhaps causally with some of the characteristic problems of modern politics. Individualism that dilutes community bonds and leads to the kind of lonely egoism identified by many social thinkers but also a politics characterized by constant rancor and an unwillingness to compromise. That may or may not be an accurate description. It is, however, accurate in the proposition that the cause is rights talk or the subject of rights talk, namely rights. Is it an actual accurate description of rights themselves? My answer is, it depends. Specifically, it depends on just how one understands rights and how one talks about rights. My rights talk is divided into four parts. First, I want to pose two more specific problems that quickly emerge when we apply ourselves to the question of rights in light of the problems noted by 
for example, George Will and Mary Ann Glendon. Second, I want to make some distinctions about rights that concern the two fundamental questions about them, namely, what are rights and what explains their existence. Third, I want to look at what seems to me the key text in Aquinas on this question. And fourth, I'll suggest the lines of a Thomistic understanding of our practice of rights that I think goes a good bit towards mitigating the problems discussed by people like George Will, for example, and Marianne Glendon. Okay, so the first part. I want to begin with two quotations, the first of which I think is easily recognizable. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Well, okay. Recognizable? Yes. Okay. Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence. And that's, of course, what that is. It established the United States as a nation dedicated first and foremost to the protection of fundamental rights. Indeed, we can call these rights natural rights, since the Declaration refers to them not only as self-evident truths, but in the immediately preceding sentence, it refers to, quote, the laws of nature and of nature's God, unquote. The fundamental basis, then, of American government seems to be precisely natural rights, an account of natural rights. Now consider a second quotation, one from a document produced some 216 years later. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Belief about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state. That's perhaps a less familiar quotation. Anthony Kennedy, in fact, this is that, that's the you know, sometimes quoted mystery passage, as it's sometimes called, from the United States Supreme Court's opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which decided in 1992. In that case, the court reaffirmed the existence of a constitutional right to abortion. Like the Declaration of Independence, then, it is fundamentally concerned with rights, but the similarity, I think, ends there. The Declaration, as I said, grounds itself in the laws of nature and of nature's God, which are self-evident truths. The Casey Court held, or so it seems on any plain reading, that there is a fundamental right to, quote, define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, unquote. It's hard to know what to make of the passage, promulgated solemnly and authoritatively by our highest court, even as a matter of logic. How, for example, does one define a mystery? If one can define one's own concept of meaning, does that not pose problems for anyone else's rights claims? We have a different conception of meaning. How does one person recognize the rights of another if they have a different concept of meaning? Moreover, I have to confess that even though I make my living as a professional student of philosophy, I shudder to think of what I would do if I were required to produce my own concept of the universe. I don't have one. 
So the question here is this, what happened? What explains the transition from the Declaration of Independence's doctrine of natural rights, recognizable as self-evident truths, to Casey's right to define one's own universe? Clearly, something has changed. I said that they do have one thing in common, and that is that they both concern fundamental rights. This common element has led some to think that the charge was in some the change was in some sense foreordained. That if the country was founded on a doctrine of individual rights, the transition to a kind of radical individualism, a radical individualism that leads to relativism and perhaps even to nihilism, was easy. We have arrived where we are because we began where we started. The discourse of individual rights is the culprit. Now this leads me to a second problem that I want to notice. I said above that the critics of rights talk often identify it as a modern innovation. That in earlier ages in societies, political discourse was not, as it often is with us, about rights. In the ancient world, for example, there was much more talk about things like community, virtue, and duty, and very little, if any, talk about rights. So too with the medieval world, the world of St. Thomas Aquinas. Many influential historians of political and legal thought have argued that there is no doctrine of natural rights in the thought of Aquinas. Rather, Aquinas taught the doctrine of natural law. Rights are understood by modern political thinkers as a kind of individual sovereignty, a protected zone in which the individual is free to make whatever choice she wants about some matter, a constituent element of necessarily individual freedom, and a kind of possession or property of individuals. Law, on the other hand, restrains one's choices, and so limits the sovereignty of the individual. Natural law is one thing, an ancient or medieval thing. Natural rights are something entirely different, a modern thing. Rights are about freedom. Laws are about constraint. And Aquinas on this view was very much on the restraint side. Natural rights emerged with the Enlightenment thinkers, who rejected Thomistic moral and political thought. Among those Enlightenment thinkers was, most importantly for us Americans, John Locke. Several passages in the Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson, are virtual quotations from Locke's second treatise on government. If you ever visit Thomas Jefferson's stately home, Monticello, and you should if you find yourself in Charlottesville, Virginia, you can see Locke's portrait hanging in Jefferson's living room along with the portraits of Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton, who Jefferson called in a letter to his friend Benjamin Rush, quote, my trinity of the three greatest men the world has ever produced, unquote. Now, these two problems that I've mentioned, I think, are closely related, since the second aims to explain the first. If postmodernism is a reaction to modernism, then the Casey decision's seemingly insouciant postmodern view of rights is a natural development out of Jefferson's view of rights in the Declaration, grounded as it was in the Enlightenment's rejection of Thomistic natural law. We have then a very neat, if depressing, narrative. Natural law is replaced by natural rights, which in turn yield to relativistic individualism. The narrative may be true as far as it goes, although 
as I've just sketched out, is certainly far too simplistic. But I want to leave this issue aside in favor of what seems to me to be the more important question moving forward. Did it have to work out that way? Does the recognition of natural rights necessarily lead to individualism and perhaps relativism? And must it be at odds with natural law as Aquinas understood it? Must we choose between natural law and natural rights? To begin to answer this question, we need to gain some clarity about just what we mean by a right and what explains the existence of rights. So now my second part. I want to discuss these issues in turn, but first it's necessary to make explicit a distinction that I have been assuming up until now. I've been speaking mainly about natural rights, but those are not the only kinds of rights. By natural right, we usually mean a right to which one is entitled simply in virtue of being a human person. For Aquinas, of course, all humans are persons, but not all persons are human. God is a person, indeed three persons. Angels are persons. But there are also civil or legal rights to which persons are entitled in virtue of some specific status established by practice or law. As we all know from watching reruns of Law and Order, you have a right to an attorney if you're arrested. But that isn't a natural right. It was established by the Supreme Court in a famous case called Gideon v. Wainwright, decided in 1963. You also have a right to remain silent. But that's not a natural right either. It was established in Miranda v. Arizona, decided by the Supreme Court in 1966. Both natural and legal rights have certain features in common, which is important for, in what I will say about the character of rights, but they are different. And it is the difference that matters most in discussing why there are rights at all. But first things first, what is a right? The most helpful analytical account of rights was actually produced by an American law professor, Wesley Newcomb Hofeld, who lived from 1879 to 1918, in an article that he published in the Yale Law Journal in 1913. The real genius of Hofeld's analysis was his recognition that we often use the term right to mean quite different things, quite different kinds of, and here we get to what rights really are, kinds of relationships between human beings. This alone is significant since it led him to reject the notion commonly accepted that one could have a right to something, say, a wristwatch, that was a relationship between you and that thing. My ownership of my watch is a relationship between me and the watch on this view. But Hofeld argued that there can be no legal relationship between a person and a thing, only between persons relative to a thing. So my legal ownership of my watch is actually a relationship between me and everyone else relative to the use and ownership of that watch. And so rights on this view are, first of all, kinds of relationships, relationships between persons. In fact, they are three-term relations between one person, one or more other particular people, and some thing or act description. Because in some cases, in many cases, rights are not just to a particular thing, but they are to actions that one is allowed to perform under certain circumstances. Second, Hofeld distinguished four meanings 
that are sometimes ascribed to a right. We four different kinds of rights. The first he called a claim right. And this is a right in the strongest terms because a claim right indicates the existence of a specific correlative duty. The most common case of claim rights in law involve things like contracts. If you agree to sell me your house, then we have a certain relationship. Once I've paid the money or secured the loan from the bank, I have a claim right to the house. And you have an obligation to provide the house to me. Similarly, you have a claim right to payment, and I have an obligation to pay you. One popular way of defining a right is to argue that a right exists where there is an obligation. This is true of claim rights, but not all rights are of this type. The second sort of right that Hofeld distinguished was what he called a liberty right. He actually called it a privilege, uh, but that complicates things, so I'm just going to call it um, a liberty right. A liberty right of some kind indicates the absence of any operative claim right. For example, I have a liberty right to knock out the wall between my kitchen and dining room if I want. I do have that right now. But I had no similar right when I lived in an apartment, since the apartment complex's owners forbade such things in the lease that I signed. They had a claim right against my doing certain things to the apartment that I rented from them. This is an important category, since we are often said to have rights that are really uh, often re, uh, really liberties and that entail no obligation on anyone else's part. I may want to walk, knock down the wall between my kitchen and my living room and my house, uh, and I may have the liberty to do so, but I may also lack the means. I don't have the expertise, I don't have the money, whatever. A third kind of right, Hofeld called a power. Power here means the power to perform some act that has legal effect, especially the sort of effect that may alter the legal position of another person. I have a power if I am under no legal liability from another party. For example, I have the power to make a will which could alter the legal position of my natural heirs. Spouses have powers over one another's legal positions. Similarly, adults have the power to enter into binding contracts of various kinds with one another. Children don't have those powers, but adults do. Finally, the fourth kind of relationship that Hofeld discusses, he called an immunity, meaning that one's legal position cannot be altered by the power of another. I have, for example, an immunity from being required to testify against my wife in a criminal proceeding against her. There's never been such a proceeding. Some of the rights that make up the Bill of Rights appended to the United States Constitution are then really immunities. We can recognize this from the very language of some of those articles. Quote, Congress shall make no law, unquote. The most important aspect of Hofeld's analysis is that it presses one to state propositions about rights with great precision, a precision that is often missing from the sorts of claims that so annoyed George Will and chagrined Ambassador Glendon. Hofeld was concerned with legal rights, not natural rights, but his analysis applies to natural rights as well. To claim that some natural right exists, I must, I think, 
be able to specify who holds the right against whom, over what matters, and whether the right in question is a claim right, a liberty, a power, or an immunity. Now, I'll come back to this, but first I want to say something about the more general ground of rights. Contemporary political and legal philosophers have tended to explain the existence of rights according to one of two theories. The so-called benefit or interest theory of rights holds that rights are to be explained by reference to a benefit owed by one person to another or a person's interest that must be protected. This theory was most famously defended by Jeremy Bentham, the founder of utilitarianism, and it's been championed most strongly by later utilitarians. The other theory is usually called the choice or will theory of rights, and it's close to the view of rights that I discussed earlier when we think of rights as a kind of individual sovereignty. The choice or will theorist holds that rights are really powers of individuals to make certain choices for themselves, free from interference from others, and that within their protected sphere they are indeed sovereign. The choice theorist rejects the benefit theory because they think it really isn't a theory of rights at all, since rights aren't doing any of the real work in the benefit or interest theory, but really are more like reflexes or consequences of the benefit or interest in question which is really the primary thing, right? The benefit of the interest comes first, and the fact that there's a right is really just kind of a reverberation or a consequence of that. The most well-known recent choice theorist was the great English legal philosopher H.L.A. Hart, who lived from 1907 to 1992, perhaps the most celebrated legal philosopher in the English-speaking world in the last half century or so. Interestingly, Hart partly changed his view of rights based on a criticism of the choice theory made by the Scottish legal philosopher Neil McCormick. McCormick favored the benefit theory, and he suggested as a counterexample to the choice theory of rights, he suggested a counterexample to the choice theory of rights that Hart could not explain, namely, the rights of children. Children below the age of majority have no legal powers in their own names. And therefore, it seems, they, didn't have, they don't have any legal choices that they could make. And yet most people seem to think that children do have some legal rights. If this is so, then the rights of children simply cannot be explained by the choice theory. But they can be explained, McCormick held, by the benefit or the interest theory. In response to this, Hart was actually forced to concede the point. And so he abandoned the view that moral rights, including what were considered the most important constitutional rights in most modern countries, could be explained by the choice theory. And so he said those, those rights have to be explained by something else, although he did maintain that most explicitly legal rights could be explained by the choice theory. In the case of moral rights, Hart suggested that their basis could only be located in certain very basic human needs. Now, both Hart and McCormick's views of rights are modern liberal views grounded in a kind of individualism. Moreover, McCormick's view, which is in many respects preferable, is also tied to a kind of utilitarianism that is problematic for reasons that I can't enter into here, but arguments against utilitarianism are pretty well known. 
My aim in mentioning them is to show that the question of why there are any rights remains a disputed question. And so I now want to sketch out the sort of alternative understanding of rights that could be developed out of explicitly Thomistic principles. So not the benefit theory or the choice theory, but a third theory of rights that I think can be developed out of the views of Aquinas. In thinking about a Thomistic account of natural rights, we have to face up to the problem I mentioned earlier. There is no full-dress theory of natural rights in the work of Aquinas. There is no question or article in the Summa Theologiae or any of his other systematic works where he spells this out. This has led many to say that that is because it is a modern notion associated with thinkers like Locke. Aquinas, this objection goes, has natural law. Locke has natural rights. Rights are individual powers. Laws are constraints. Now, one obvious way around this is to say that natural rights are derived in some way from natural law. So, for example, Aquinas clearly thinks that we have a duty to worship God, and this duty, therefore, entails the existence of a right to worship God. Since, as we all know, ought implies can. I think this is true, but I don't think it gets us very far. It explains a few rights, but it doesn't explain most rights. Moreover, those who contrast rights with law reject the idea that the former can be derived from the latter. That is, they reject the idea that rights can be, natural rights can be derived from natural law, partly because they see rights as mainly a kind of power, the individual sovereignty that I mentioned, and that that could not be rooted in a duty because it is the opposite of duty. One reason for the impasse on this point is, I think, an erroneously narrow understanding of what Aquinas meant by natural law. Natural law is one of four kinds of law that Aquinas distinguished from one another in Summa Theologiae, uh, Prima Secundae, the first part of the second part of the Summa, question 91 in his famous treatise on law. Law as such, law itself, is in that place famously defined as, quote, an ordinance of reason directed to the common good and promulgated by, ever, by whoever has the care of the community. That famous definition of law is given in question 90, article 4 of the Prima Secundae of the Summa. An ordinance of reason directed to the common good and promulgated by whoever has the care of the community. Now, it's important that ordinance, ordinatio in Latin, can mean a good bit more than simply an order or command. You can certainly translate ordinatio with those terms, but it can mean, I think, a lot more than that. It can and often does mean a kind of order in a more abstract sense, in a more general sense. And it's also important that punishment is not a part of Thomas's definition of law. He later refers to punishment as an act of law, but it's not part of his essential definition with those four characteristics, an ordinance of reason directed to the common good by whoever has the care of the community and promulgated. It's a kind of adjunct to that definition. In both of these things, Thomas's account of law is very different from modern 
positivistic definitions of law that tend to assimilate it simply to commands made on the pain of sanction. If anybody's taken a political theory course and you read Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, for example, that's Hobbes's view. A law is a command of the sovereign which has a punishment attached to it. A lot of early modern and 19th century conceptions of law had that view. In question 91, Thomas tells us that there are four kinds of law. First is the eternal law, which refers to God's providential government of the whole universe. It may seem strange to call this law, but it has all the characteristics assigned to law in the definition from question 90. It is rational, since God himself is the measure of reason. It's directed to the common good of the whole universe. It issues from the one who cares, from the whole community of creation, God himself. Now, the third aspect of the definition, promulgation may seem to be a bit sticky here. The eternal law resides first in God's mind, and we human beings have no direct access to God's mind. So how could we say that it's promulgated? Aquinas, however, holds that it is promulgated in three somewhat unusual ways. He mentions promulgation in the Word and the Book of Life. Promulgation in the Word, I take it, refers to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Since God is three persons, there is a sense in which God promulgates the eternal law within himself. The Book of Life is a reference to the biblical book, Revelation, which refers to a book in which are written the names of those who are saved, indicating thereby those who are damned. So this is a reference to God's foreknowledge of the destiny of all human beings. Most importantly for our purposes, however, is a third sense in which the eternal law is promulgated. Thomas calls the second kind of law natural law, and he defines it as the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. Man participates in God's providential government of things through his own created nature which is distinguished by the power of free, deliberate choice. Man is the cause of his own acts, and it is precisely in this sense that man is said in the prologue to the second part of the Summa to be an image of God, because he's an intellectual being with the power of free choice. We share in God's providential government through our free will, which is directed by reason, so the eternal law is promulgated to us through the nature that God gave us as human beings through creation. The natural law, then, is also law in that it is an ordinance of reason directed to the common good and promulgated by whoever has the care of the community. It is, therefore, law because it shares these four characteristic elements of law. And it is natural because it is promulgated to us through our created human nature, which is rational nature. We humans are the causes of our own actions through our powers of deliberate choice. Now, Aquinas, like Aristotle, held that every action is for the sake of some good. So these acts that we choose are chosen in pursuit of goods, goods that are good for us because of the natures we have. The things that are good for us are good for us because of the natures that we have. Aquinas says in Question 94, Article 2, that we act for the sake of life. That's a kind of good. We act for the sake of offspring. We act for the sake of knowledge. 
We act for the sake of social life. All of these things are natural goods for human beings, goods for beings that have the natures that we have. And the natural law contains precepts that are related to the pursuit of these natural goods. The natural law, then, is Aquinas' way of referring to the intelligibility of human action. It is a participation in the eternal law because the eternal law controls all movements in the universe. The natural law is concerned with the human part of the universe and describes our movements through free, deliberate choices aimed at the achievement of our good, the perfection of our natures. Human beings pursue the natural goods through their natural abilities and powers, powers like thinking or locomotion. Those powers work best when they are rightly disposed towards their objects, and the right disposition of those powers is what Aquinas calls virtues. So virtue too, in question 94, he says that the natural law includes the acts that are in accordance with all the virtues. So virtue too is part of the natural law. We can see now that there is a rather simple synonym for natural law, morality. It's a way of talking about morality, about what human beings should do to fulfill the possibilities of their natures and to behave reasonably. Now, I've gone into some detail about Thomas's understanding of the natural law because part of the challenge of thinking about natural rights from a Thomistic perspective is that opposition so, clear, so commonly drawn between natural law on the one hand and natural rights on the other hand. But if by natural law Thomas simply means morality, the deliberate pursuit by human beings of their good by rational action, then I do not see how there must be any such opposition between these two things. The view I described before holds that natural law is all about constraint and natural rights all about freedom. This is surely wrong. The natural law for Aquinas is just as much about freedom as are natural rights, free, deliberate choices that human beings make. And if this is the case, then there is no inconsistency between the two and no bar to seeing the latter as somehow derived from the former, natural rights as being derived from natural law. Natural rights come from natural Where else would they come from? If natural law is a way of understanding the intelligibility of human action as free choices, where else could they come from? We are most accustomed to thinking about morality in terms of rules, and there are moral rules. Aquinas holds that the Ten Commandments are themselves precepts of the natural law. But virtues are also part of morality, and so also part of natural law. And so are rights, at least natural rights. Rules, virtues, rights are all parts of natural law. Now, if what I've argued just now is right, then natural rights are derived from the natural law and thus ultimately from the eternal law. But I've not yet said anything about how natural rights can be so derived. I think that from a Thomistic perspective, we can see natural rights as derived from principles of natural law in at least two ways. 
One way is fairly straightforward. Life is one of the natural goods distinguished by Aquinas in question 94, article 2 of the Prima Secundae of the Summa. And he says there is a natural law precept that orders us to respect human life. Later in the Secunda Secundae, the second part of the second part of the Summa, Thomas holds that the intentional killing of human beings is permissible in only two cases. The killing of criminals by political authorities through the legal system, capital punishment basically, and the killing of enemy soldiers in a just war. The intentional killing of innocent persons is always wrong and always forbidden. If Smith is an innocent person, then Jones has a duty to respect Smith's life, certainly not to kill him. Now remember Hofeld. The existence of a duty implies a correlate right. If Jones has a duty to respect Smith's life, along with everybody else, so the duty is now generalized, then Smith has a right to his life. Commands can, in this way, entail rights. Aquinas also holds that reproduction and the care of offspring are natural goods for human beings, and that natural law precepts follow from this. One such precept, I think, is this. Parents have a duty to educate their children. Children thus have a correlate right to an education, a kind of claim right relative to their parents. So here are two natural rights, a right to life, certainly for the innocent at any rate, and a right to education on the part of children. Now those who reject the derivation of natural rights from natural law won't much like this. Their response would likely be that the examples I just gave, in the examples I just gave, the real work is not being done by the rights, but by the duties. The rights, they might say, are mere reflexes of prior obligations, just the criticism that advocates of the choice theory of rights make against the benefit theorists of rights that I mentioned earlier. The force of the criticism rests on the sense that here the right is really just parasitic on the duty and no moral force of its own, but just a kind of consequence. I'm not sure that's right, at least in these two cases. I think that circumstances may well one, make one take notice of the right first, and the duty really only later. Imagine, for example, seeing a neglected child and feeling that here is a human being deprived of what is her right, which she might not know about at all, really. And only later, and as a consequence of this, feeling a kind of indignation at the failure of her parents to fulfill their duty, or the community in place of the parents, if something has gone wrong. In that case, it's the right that, that one notices first, and the duty only comes about later on as a kind of conclusion from this, a reaction to it. There is, however, another aspect of this and another worry from those who think rights cannot be derived from law. The term that we translate as right from Aquinas' Latin is the word jus, spelled either I-U-S or J-U-S, depending on which convention you adopt. Jus, and it's the root of the word justice, which in Latin is justitia. 
Justice for Aquinas is first and foremost the name of a virtue, the virtue of justice, and only secondarily the name that we could give to a state of affairs. The virtue is defined by him as, quote, the perpetual and constant will to render to each his jus. That's in the second part of the second part of the Summa, question 59, article 1. Jus is also related to justum. Justum in Latin means the right thing or the just thing. Now this last, according to Aquinas, means, the justum, a relationship between persons, a kind, he says, of adjustment between them. And he defines, he divides jus into two types, what he calls jus naturale and jus positivum. The first, jus naturale, literally means natural right, although crucially here, it again means a relationship, one that is a function of nature itself. And when explaining it, Aquinas gives two examples. One concerns a kind of equivalent value of things, for example, in a trade. So I give you, you give me something and I give you something back that is something we both recognize as roughly equivalent. It might be an amount of money, but it might be another object, say, in a barter. But there's a sense that there's a natural kind of equivalency between the two. The second example he gives, however, is more interesting. It's the relationship between parents and children. The relationship between parents and children is natural in the strict sense in that the children literally come from the bodies of the parents in a strictly natural process. And their relationship to one another is literally a function of this. Positive right, on the other hand, is a function of some kind of agreement between people. Not, it's not natural. It's the function of an agreement among people. Could be a private agreement, could be a public agreement. In now, in between natural and positive right is actually a third category, what Aquinas, following the ancient Roman lawyers, calls jus gentium, the right of nations or the right of peoples. This is a form of right or relationship that isn't strictly natural, like that of parents to children, but follows very quickly from reason about the natural. The main example that Aquinas gives here is private property. That individual persons own things is not naturally right in the strict sense because there is no natural relationship between any one person and anything in the world, in contrast to the clear natural relationship between parents and children. In other words, I own this wristwatch. I bought it on Amazon. I used currency that we all agree about the value of. The whole thing is a function of social agreements of one kind. There's no natural relationship between me and the watch or me and any of the materials in the watch at all. There is, on the other hand, a natural relationship between me and my children. It's got nothing to do with agreement. It's literally natural. They've got my DNA. Um, and so there's a big difference between those two things. Property is the result of social agreement and laws. Now, the facts of human nature suggest that private ownership is ordinarily the best way to arrange property among persons under normal circumstances. 
So most human societies have the institution of private property. And yet it's still a step removed from nature itself. And you could imagine circumstances in which maybe you wouldn't want to have strictly private property. For example, a disaster of some kind happens, and the survival of the species requires that the government allocate resources in a certain way, right? I mean, something like that could happen. So it's not strictly natural the way my relationship with my children is. Now, this suggests that there are some claims of right that individuals can make on the basis of nature. Natural rights in the strongest sense, like the right to life, or the right to be cared for by one's parents. There are other rights that are rather close to being natural rights, but a step removed from them and classed as rights under jus gentium. For example, the right to the fruits of one's own labor. Finally, there are all kinds of rights arrived at by public and private agreement and thus parts of positive right. For example, the right to vote to make contracts or wills, the right to an attorney if you've been arrested. Now, one more wrinkle here. Remember that jus is the object of justice. The right is the object of the virtue of justice. Aquinas follows Aristotle in seeing different parts of the virtue of justice. He says that one kind of justice, what he calls legal justice, directs one's acts relative to uh, the common good. There's also what he calls particular justice, which directs one to act relative to other persons. Particular justice is then itself divided between distributive justice, which concerns the distribution of goods common in the community to individuals, and what he calls commutative justice, which directs one in one's relationship with others, for example, in buying and selling things but also compensating one another for losses or injuries that might be suffered, and also the punishments that are meted out to criminals. The two types of particular justice, distributive and commutative, are particular relative to legal justice. So even those two are relative to the common good. The idea of the common good is obviously quite important here. It's a big topic, and I just want to make two brief remarks about it. First, a common good is a good that is shareable. And the good that is most common, most shareable for Aquinas, is the final and universal good of the whole cosmos, which is God. But the political community itself is also a kind of common good, what is sometimes called the temporal or political common good. For Thomas, of course, the temporal common good is subject to the universal ultimate common good. And so one's relationship in justice to that good transcends politics. For Aquinas, religio, the Latin word that gets translated as religion, is the name also of a virtue, a virtue related to justice. It disposes one to give to God what is God's use, God's right, which is worship. This would be, for Aquinas, the, uh, the basis for the natural right of religious freedom, that one has a duty to give God what is God's right, entails a right on behalf of human beings to worship, and that worship wouldn't have any value if it weren't done freely apart from coercion. 
So the right to religious freedom is, in fact, for Thomas, grounded in God's right to worship from human beings. The immunity right of religious freedom for human beings is grounded in the claim right that God has to worship. Okay, last and very brief uh, conclusion. In conclusion, I now have to admit to you that the modern rights theorist will probably not be persuaded by what I have just said, even though I'm completely right. Um, and maybe for, no sh- for a reason that you might have already anticipated. If a right is a kind of individual sovereignty, a zone of freedom in which one's choices are entirely a function of one's own will, then the Thomistic account of natural rights that I have suggested is not an account of rights in that sense. It is, a modern theorist would say, an account of right, right in the singular, rather than rights, which is not a protected zone of individual sovereignty, but a kind of objective relationship between persons, one in which duties and the common good play a major role. Nothing I have said will convince him otherwise, nor in a sense should it. In the end, there is a divide between the Thomistic account that I have given, and which I think is the sober truth, and the modern understanding of rights, one that goes back to Thomas Jefferson and his trinity of Bacon, Newton, and Locke. This was not Aquinas' trinity. For Aquinas, natural right and natural law are ways in which we are ordered to our final ends in the universal good that is God. For Jefferson and his successors, not least the judges who signed on to the majority opinion in the Casey decision, we are our own ends, and thus our own sovereigns, sovereign individuals who must get along together. There is no getting around this difference. But, and this is my final point, when we think of the most important human rights, what Aquinas would call natural rights, things like the right to life, to care and upbringing, the right not to be tortured, the right to worship freely, when we think of those rights, we think of ways in which those rights are protected by the institutions and practices of modern political and legal systems. Institutions are often related to theories, but they are not the same as theories. And the same institutions can be upheld and maintained on the basis of more than one theoretical account. I think that modern theories of rights as the individual sovereignty of persons who are their own ends is mistaken and often leads to just the problems with which I began. But unlike some of those who have noted these problems, I do not believe the remedy is to repudiate the notion of natural or human rights. The protections they afford human persons against the terrible power wielded by modern states is too important. The remedy is to explain them and improve them on the basis of a better theory. St. Thomas Aquinas did not produce a theory of human rights, but his moral and political thought contained the materials out of which a better theory can be constructed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, 
please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.